very naturalistic society. And so when we come to passages of the Bible that are a little bit weird, like we have come to today, weird from our context, but completely normal because it's speaking about reality. Uh, But when we're talking about the supernatural, people begin to feel a little uncomfortable. They're okay if you gather around the campfire and you're like, so have you ever seen a ghost? Or have you ever had a supernatural experience? And people will be like, actually, yeah. It's, it's a fun game if you ever want to do it because you'll be surprised at how many people have had supernatural experiences. Um, but we as Christians, we have an explicitly supernatural worldview. We believe in angels. We believe in demons. We believe in God who made all things. We believe in miracles and healings and uh, all sorts of different things that God does. This is all supernatural. We have a supernatural worldview. And then when it comes to the supernatural things in kind of the real world, not just like in our abstract mind, we get a bit uncomfortable. We become a bit uncomfortable talking about the spiritual realm. But it is real, and it is highly influential. And it's not just in the Bible, it exists right now. The supernatural world is very real, and it has a real impact on not just individuals, but world events. Uh, When we consider, as Christians, what we're up against, Ephesians 6.12 calls them cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's who we wrestle against. That's who our fight's against. That's where we're bringing the heat. That's where our fiercest battles uh, take place. And we can either get frightened or we get dismissive. But how powerful are these creatures? Well, they're very powerful. They're very influential. And they're very effective. They've been around a long time. They know humans. They have seen humans in all range of existence and periods and ages and eons. And we've been reflecting in Peter over the the power of suffering and how much suffering has made a huge impact in the world and how it impacts our marriages, it impacts our families, it impacts our workplaces. But one of the... Peter is leading to this great crescendo of when it not only impacts all these areas of our life, though they are important, but it impacts and shatters the whole spiritual paradigm that everything existed in before Christ came. Christ didn't just come to defeat Roman governors. He didn't just defeat the high priest and the Sanhedrin. He didn't just defeat sinful man in his rebellion. He defeated the ruler of this world, Satan. And how did he defeat Satan? By suffering for his people, he wrestled them out of Satan's grasp and gave them the ultimate victory in him. You are a free son or daughter of the Most High God because of Jesus. The power of the devil and the darkness has no hold over you because of what Christ did on the cross. And so I've got three points that I want to share with you. My first point is this, Christ's suffering won a people. Number two, Christ's suffering triumphed over the enemy. And number three, Christ's suffering gave him ultimate glory. So, let's get into it. Verse 18, Christ's suffering won a people. The Apostle Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, this is a dense verse. I could very much preach an entire sermon just on verse 18, but I won't do it to you guys. Uh, If I was going to do that, I'd break it up. Uh, But Peter is making an important point. The first kind of point that I want you to see is that uh, Christ's suffering produced something, but his suffering, it wasn't eternal. Christ suffered, Peter says here, once 
for sins. Once. This is important. Roman Catholics, for instance, believe that at every Eucharist, when they pray over the bread and they pray over the wine, they are actually sacrificing Christ again. All the suffering and pain that he had on the cross happens again right there on that altar. And then they dispense the elements to everyone that's standing there and they partake of Christ's sacrifice made afresh then and there. It was actually so fearful. People would be like, oh, every Sunday, God was coming here on this altar and we were going to eat him. And it was dreadful. It was fearful. A lot of people were freaked out by it. And there was this idea that you can re-sacrifice Christ. In fact, they kind of believed that Christ for the rest of eternity is going to be eternally suffering. But is that what the Bible says? I mean, we're not Roman Catholics, so we don't believe that that's what the Bible says. Peter says here, Christ suffered once, once for all. In fact, suffering is not the point. We've been talking a lot about suffering, but suffering is a means to an end. It isn't the end itself. It's momentary. Hebrews 10.10 says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, not again and again and again and again on the altar, but once for all. It's important to remember, because whose suffering are we mimicking when we suffer here in this world? We're mimicking Christ's suffering. In the same way, we endure a light, momentary affliction that produces a weight of glory. Peter says in, uh, in, we already saw in chapter 1, verse 6, in this you rejoice. He says here, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And you might be thinking, like Peter, lay off a little bit, mate. I am going through a hard time. And here you are saying, oh, you know, if necessary for a little while, minimizing the kind of thing that I'm going through. It feels like an eternity. But Peter says, get some right perspective on it. It is very light when you bring to bear the weight of eternity upon it. It's a tiny moment of time, a little blip, a small period compared to the weight of glory that awaits us. It always helps to remember that. Just as when uh, some of you ladies will know that when you went into labor, that was quite a fearful and terrible experience. And it was probably, uh, it it gets worse and worse and worse as it goes along. But hopefully you made it through, knowing that it is momentary, that you'll get to the other side. And on the other side, not only do you reach the other side and you can breathe a sigh of relief, it's done, but you receive reward. There's a subsequent glory, right? A little child in your hands. Just as a man in the heat of battle, going to fight for his family, going to fight for his country, to rescue his nation from the hands of an enemy, he knows that this moment of suffering is not eternal, but he is paying this price now so that victory can come for his people. That's the kind of mindset we must have as Christians when we go into suffering. We know it's not It's not forever. It's not eternal. We can't mope around. We can't be wallowing in self-pity or worried about um, whether this is going to be forever because compared to us, Christ's suffering was cosmic. It was enormous. It was a far greater magnitude than you could ever possibly fathom. But it happened once. Remember that. Once. It's done. For all time, Christ has redeemed a people. He went to battle and he won the battle. He suffered greatly in that battle, but he won. He's redeemed a people and he brought them to God on the cross of Calvary. The righteous for the unrighteous. And in case you're wondering, you're the unrighteous. 
you can never really forget who you are before Christ. Not only does it keep you humble, but it corrects you. It helps you know who you really are. Once we were unrighteous, we were sinful, we were depraved, we were wicked. And yet in our weakness and our misery, God saw us lost, miserable, destitute and suffered in our place. Look at the way that Paul refers to it in in Romans 5.10. He says, For if while we were enemies, powerful language there, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. I mean, what kind of love is this? Why did Christ suffer for us? It's a good question. I mean, Paul just told us here, while we were enemies. We were his enemies. We were unrighteous. We were undeserving. We were unworthy. Why would he do this? Why does he willingly go into suffering? It's not like we were his friends. It's not like we had his back and we were going to support him all the step of the way. We were his enemies. If anything, we were there shouting with the rest of the crowd, crucify him. And yet he went on to the cross for us. And Peter tells us, why did he do it? That he might bring us to God. That's why he did it. He looked beyond what he saw in us. He looked beyond our hostility and he saw our friendship. He looked beyond our weakness and he saw the strength that he was going to build in us. He looked beyond our unworthiness to the people that will be citizens of his kingdom. He looked beyond our rebellion to the glory that he will receive and give. Have a look at Hebrews 12 too. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ didn't endure the cross for the sake of suffering. He wasn't trying to set us an example of being a good person and what it looks like to suffer. Though, you know, he did set an example, that's for sure. It says here he despised the shame that it brought really want Gary to come up and sing that song again. It was alone the Saviour prayed because what did Jesus ask in the garden that the Father would do for him? Take that cup away, that cup we read in Psalm 75 at the beginning of the service, the cup of God's wrath. He said, take it away from me. Let it pass from me. He didn't want to go into that suffering. He hated the penalty that needed to be paid. It's okay to hate your suffering. You don't love suffering for suffering's sake. Why do we go through it? Because of what it can produce. That is why. That is why we do it. Suffering isn't a good thing. But through the mercy of God and through His wonderful working in us, He makes it, well, He doesn't make it into a good thing, but He brings good out of it. What someone means for evil, God means for good. And through this suffering, Christ would have subsequent glories. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He ascended to the throne. He defeated His enemies and He won a people. And we too know that in our sufferings, while we're dying in the flesh, we are being made alive in the Spirit as Christ was. Have a listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 16, 18. I know it's a lot of Scripture, but good Scripture to write down. Paul says, We do not lose hearts. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, that's how Paul refers to our suffering, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they'll pass away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Peter is echoing Paul here. He says, don't lose heart. Whatever you are suffering, whatever you're going through, whatever areas of your life that are out of control, remember to look to the things that are unseen. Things that you can't see, but that you trust in God and your faith in God, you believe that through your suffering will come into being here in this life or in the one to come. Early in my walk of faith, I was like so willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. I was willing to count everything as loss. Like whatever you want to take from me, God, take it away. And in many ways, I was actually quite a a massive fool in the way that I behaved because I was so uh, headlong throwing myself into suffering and I brought a lot of unnecessary suffering upon myself. But that heart can quickly be lost. My heart was in the right place, but I was just a fool. And a fool, a fool with the right heart can still do a lot of damage. You can get wise about suffering and when to suffer and when to fight. But if you lose your heart for suffering, for doing what is right, it can be very difficult to get that back. It's much more easy to learn wisdom about suffering than to get that heart and once you've lost it. So don't lose heart, Paul tells you. Look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He says our outer self is wasting away, but don't ever make that foolish assumption that your inner self is wasting away along with it. We are being renewed day by day into the likeness of Jesus who was made alive in the Spirit. Now you see older people, and you can really get two sides of the the coin, right? You can get some of the most lovely people you've ever met who are advanced in years. And then there are others who are the most cranky, bitter, non-filter people you've ever met. And they, along with as their outer self was wasting away, they let their inner self waste away too. But not us as Christians. There's an inverse relationship. As your body wastes away, we expect our inner self being renewed. We expect our inner self growing and getting better. And people will see it. Just like Christ, we believe that as we uh, press on into that inner self, our suffering will produce godliness in both ourselves and by the grace of God in others too. Our spouses, bosses, children, neighbors, and church will want to know what our hope is in. And they're not going to learn that by your outer self. They're not going to be like, man, you're jacked or you're really beautiful. Tell me about Christ. That's, that's, no one's going to ask you about that. But your inner self, who you are, your willingness to undergo suffering for the right, righteousness sake will prompt questions. That's what Peter says the other week. So suffer with the expectation that God will work in it. For the enemies of the church will not be defeated by Christians who lounge about and love comfort. They will not. They will be defeated by gospel-hearted suffering. Why? Because how did Christ defeat you? Because in a way, you can view it as being defeated. You were once his enemy, and you're no longer his enemy. So how did that happen? Well, he made you his friend. He changed your allegiance. You went from in rebellion to him to fighting for his cause. And that happened how? Through his suffering. We don't like to hear it, but as a church, that is how we fight. That is how we win. And trust me, we do win. Believe it. It's true. And we're going to see how that happened in Christ. My second point. Uh, Christ's suffering defeated the enemy. This is where it's going to get a bit weird. So, get buckled in. It's going to be good. All right, verse 19. 
in which he, Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And this is where Peter's kind of supernatural worldview comes flying out of the page for us. He believes in angels, he believes in demons, uh, and uh, they're often referred to in the New Testament in ways that most people don't expect. They aren't often called devils or tempters or demons, although that is exactly what they are. Rather, the New Testament more often prefers to call them powers and principalities and cosmic forces and spiritual authorities. Peter is opening here a can of worms for us, that is, not because he's presuming right here that the early church, they know full well what he's talking about. He doesn't expand upon it. He doesn't explain it. He just makes mention of it and moves on. And we're like, who are these spirits in prison? And what has that got to do with Noah's Ark and all that, those events that happened in the book of Genesis? And why was Jesus proclaiming to these spirits? Uh, to us, we have a foundation that is pretty sandy when it comes to spiritual things. In the reform circles, the spiritual, supernatural realm and the Bible makes us uneasy, so we de-emphasize it and we move on. Very quickly, hurriedly, you know, we want to get out of there. It's a bit awkward. Uh, new non-believers that are here are going to be like, what on earth are these people about? And we'd rather not have those conversations, so we're just going to move on. But we forget that the Christian church, it's not in a primarily struggle over culture or worldview or beliefs, although we are in a struggle over those, but we are in a struggle with the spiritual realm. And they have tried very hard to stop the church, and one of the times they did that was during the days of Noah. Have you ever thought about the language um, of rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil? Well, it's not the Roman Senate or the Jewish Sanhedrin or the Australian Parliament. He's not talking about the emperor or the prime minister. He's talking about these ancient spiritual forces who have been in a long war. And you can expect that war to be throughout the whole Bible. And you can see it. From Genesis 3 onwards, there is a spiritual war right up to Revelation 22. And so who are these spirits? Well, Peter gives us a few clues. He tells us that they did not obey God. Okay, we know that. And they lived during the time of Noah. Now, a lot of Christian theologians, heavyweights of the faith, guys like John Calvin, Matthew Henry, they see these spirits as the men and women who lived during the days of Noah. You know, they were spirits that lived there and then Christ went and proclaimed the gospel to them. Or others think that these spirits are the Old Testament faithful who are waiting, you know, when is, when, when is the Messiah going to appear? When is someone going to preach the gospel to us? When are we going to get saved? I don't think these are really an accurate exegesis of the text. You may have heard those interpretations. I'll tell you why I don't think that. Well, Peter uses the word spirit here. He doesn't say the dead. When we see the resurrection of the dead or we see all these things happen, what are the dead referred to? Well, dead. They're not referred to as spirits. Do you know who is referred to as spirits? Spiritual beings who reside in the heavenly places. Uh, number two, when Jesus was on the cross, he spoke to the thief next to him and said, do you remember what he said to him? Today you will be with me in paradise. He doesn't say, today you'll be with me in prison with the rest of the spirits while I go and proclaim to them and then we'll head over to paradise. He doesn't say that. He's, Jesus isn't going to hell. He's going to be with the Father in paradise. Number three, Jesus was not preaching the gospel to unsaved people in hell because Hebrews 9.27 makes it clear it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There is no intermediary time where you get a second chance after you die. That's just, you get the one chance, this life. 
God doesn't give you another one. And lastly, number four, this event is spoken of many, many times in the New Testament, and it's never about human spirits. Peter picks it up, he brings it up again in 2 Peter, the other letter that Peter authored, in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and that word hell means is Tartarus, which is kind of helpful, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. All right, well, who are these angels that God didn't spare? When were they around? What other information do we get? Well, it goes on. Verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. All right, okay. So we're getting this idea that there's this time when Noah was around and then there were these spirits who were up to no good. They were doing some dodgy. We don't know what they were doing, but they were sinned and they've been cast into hell and they're kept in chains of darkness. Jude brings it up in Jude verse 6. He says, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. There's some huge angelic rebellion that occurred that the New Testament just assumes we all know about. And maybe some of you guys here are kind of confused and thinking, I don't know about that rebellion. That's a bit strange to me. Well, you may remember from our Genesis series, Genesis 6, verse 1 to 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, remember that phrase, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So these guys known as the sons of God cohabited with the daughters of men and produced these people known as the Nephilim. And we see this phrase, sons of God, only ever refer to angels, except for it refers to Adam in Luke. But apart from that, uh, Job 1.6, have a look, listen to this. Now there was a day when who? The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Okay, it's pretty clear who the sons of God are here, aren't they? It's angels, it's angelic beings, spiritual beings. If we have to say that people were in the days of Job coming and presenting themselves before God, and then Satan came in among them, you'd, be, you'd have a really bizarre worldview at that point. It's not what the Bible says. So what on earth is Genesis saying? Well, it says that a group of angels conspired together to interbreed with humanity in order to create for themselves their own offspring, their own seed, and God curses them for doing this. And we know that in Genesis 3, there was a battle, but it was a battle between offspring. It was a battle between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And God has already cursed Satan, and he knows that of humanity, one will come who will defeat me. One will come who will crush my head. And I cannot let that happen. And so there was a conspiracy, and they decided to corrupt the human bloodline. The Bible refers to their offspring as Nephilim, which means, in Hebrew, the fallen ones. They were particularly brutal, evil, corrupt individuals, whoever these Nephilim were. And it looked like 
the dark spiritual forces had really won. It was a significant event in the course of human history, but it only gets a few pages of the Bible dedicated to it. They had successfully brought a serious corruption into the human race, which was spreading across the planet like a cancer. And they had almost wiped out the seed of the woman until God decided to do something about it. He brought a flood. He cleansed the earth of this corruption that was occurring. And when he calls Noah, it's a very interesting phrase. So Genesis 6, 9 uh, translates it as blameless in his generation. But that word blameless literally means without blemish, without spot. It's the same phrase you'd use to like a, a goat or a, um, a lamb that you were going to sacrifice. You want it to be without spot. Uh, spot. You want it to be like a pure, pure animal. And it's saying of Noah, kind of, he's a pure man. He's not a Nephilim. He's not one of their offspring. He doesn't have this angelic blood in his veins. And so God saves him and rescues through him uh, humanity. It's not to say that he was the only man. Obviously, his sons and his sons' wives were clean as well. And there were probably others as well who, you know, hadn't fallen to that. But Noah was the righteous man that God decided to save. So what has this got anything to do with what we're talking about? It's a huge discursus. It feels like we've got really gone off the, uh, got off the plot on this one. Uh, but we see Christ in his resurrection heralding something. And he's heralding a final defeat over the enemies of God. Those demonic rulers and authorities who had ensnared, captured, and enslaved the human race were defeated in the work of the cross. And this word proclaim here is the same word we use for heralding. He's heralding something. He's proclaiming something. It would be what you'd say when you were making a proclamation of victory throughout the streets. The Romans loved it. Say they went into Gaul and they'd conquered some barbarian king and they would grab that king and all of his mighty warriors that they managed to capture, they would chain them up and they would march them through the street as this great parade of mockery. And people would sometimes pelt them with vegetables and things like that. And up the front, for everyone to see, would be the king. You know, he would be in chains and he would show this is what happens to the enemies of Rome. And so that's where this word kind of heralding, proclaiming kind of came from. Now, depending on whether you were the barbarian or the Romans, was how you were going to take that news. If you're a barbarian, that's not good news that's being proclaimed. That's your defeat being proclaimed. If you were the Romans, you're thinking, great, we're not going to get raided by these barbarians anymore. Great, we're not going to be at war with these people anymore. We're going to have peace. We're going to have prosperity. And for them, it's good news. And that is exactly what's going on here. If you are these angels, it is not good news what has just happened. The seed of the woman has come and crushed the head of the serpent. Their valiant attempts at trying to overthrow God and to try to create these rebellions have come to nothing. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is how the Bible speaks about this victory over that, the demonic realm. Every attempt that Satan made to corrupt the human race through introducing sin to us, their foiled attempts to interbreed with us, all array of deception that has come upon the human race have failed. They have failed to overcome the plans of God. And Jesus triumphed over his enemies. And this is where we kind of come back full circle triumphed them over them through his suffering. Satan thought, you know, remember when he entered Judas and betrayed Jesus? He really thought victory was at hand. He's like, I'm going to kill this guy. 
I want to make sure that he doesn't rule Israel. I'm going to make sure he doesn't defeat my enemies. He's been casting out all my demons all over the place. And some of these demons were in the crazy man, the demoniac. Remember, they couldn't bind him. He kept breaking all their chains. Yeah, there was the crazy kind of demonic influence people that we know from horror movies and things like that. But then there were the members of the synagogue and those who were in high positions of authority that Satan had got into these positions of authority. And Jesus was coming and seeing them and casting them out. He was wrecking Satan's kingdom. Satan had to silence him. He had to get rid of him. And he incited the crowd and he roused the Pharisees and he got the Sanhedrin together and he crucified the Son of God. And he thought, yes, problem solved. He didn't realize that he just checkmated himself. He didn't realize that by killing Jesus, he would lose everything. That's exactly what Paul says about it. He says, 1 Corinthians 2.8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They were tricked. They thought they were going to get the victory, and then in their very act of committing, uh, uh, afflicting the suffering upon Christ, he defeated them. He destroyed death. He swallowed death. He ate it up. And by that, he crushed the serpent's head. He destroyed him once and for all. And because of this, he now has authority over everything. Satan has been kicked out. He's been booted out. He is no longer the king and ruler of this earth as he once was. He can no longer come to Jesus and tempt him. Oh, I'll give you all the things of the earth anymore. Because why? Jesus now rules at the right hand of the Father. And that's my third point. Christ's suffering gave him ultimate glory. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we see... Peter is going to be comparing this great victory that God had over his enemies during the period of Noah's Ark with the great victory that Jesus now has over his enemies. And he, and he links baptism to it. He, he links Noah's Ark with baptism. He says, just as the waters rose and they crashed up against the boats, uh, the, the boat, not multiple, the boat, all eight people were safely brought through the water. The water did not destroy them. The wrath of God that came upon the world came and destroyed everything except for those that were in that ark. So also do we, when the waters crash against us, find ourselves safely brought through the waters in Christ. What brings us through the waters of baptism? His death, burial, and resurrection. We come out of that water resurrected, born anew. Now, some read this passage from Peter as trying to say that baptism actually somehow saves you. They'll say it says it. Clear as day here. Baptism now saves you. All right, don't read anymore. Let's go. No, that is not what's going on here. You've got to read a little further. He says, baptism saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Okay, well, first key thing, getting dunked in the water doesn't save you. Getting, that, getting all that dirt washed off you doesn't save you. The water is a symbol of bathing us and cleansing us from sin, but it's not the physical water that saves us. What does Peter say that actually saves us? Our appeal to God. It's an appeal to God that brings us salvation, right? It's a saying to God, I believe, save me. It's saying to God, I trust you, save me. That word appeal is a very strong word in the Greek. In fact, it actually means demand. And the ESV translators probably think, 
Oh, our demand to God sounds a little weird and awkward and strong. We can't demand God do anything, so we'll say appeal. Appeal sounds like a strong word. Oh, I don't know if it's as strong. I really want you to grasp what Peter is saying here. We cry out to God. That's a strong word, that appeal. We cry out to God. We're requesting earnestly. We're saying, Jesus, save us from this rushing torrent. Jesus, save us from these enclosing waters. Save us from your wrath that is to come at the end of the age. We're sincerely calling upon God. Give us a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Make us reborn. Make us anew. Cleanse us from all our sin. This is clearly a reference to the new birth. This is this idea that Peter developed earlier of being born again to a living hope. That word conscience, what do you normally think it is? Like when I think about it, I think of it as that kind of little voice that tells you, nah, don't do that. That's pretty dodgy. Yeah, that one was pretty good. Kind of rewards you for the good stuff you do and then makes you feel guilty for the bad stuff that you do. And it's, it's sort of right, but it fails to really grasp what the Greek is saying. Conscience is a word that really joins all of us together as a moral and spiritual being. It's that part of us that knows that God will judge us for our iniquity. Um, have a listen to Paul, Romans 2, 14 and 16, thinking about conscience. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Your conscience is that realization that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short, and you have a lot of things that you can do with that. Everyone feels it. Everyone has it. There's not a single person that has ever existed. Even psychopaths have it to some extent, where they know that they have disobeyed. They know that they are unworthy and they know that they are sinful. And he says here that they oh, accuse themselves. So you see there's people that are a bit more neurotic and guilt-centered and always thinking, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough. And then there's those who excuse themselves, who are arrogant and think, oh, you know, I, I, I've done some bad things, but no one's perfect or those kind of people. But it's this idea that we know in and of ourselves that we are evil. And we do a lot of things to avoid that judgment. We say a lot of things, we do a lot of things, we behave in certain ways to avoid it. And for those of us who came to faith later in life, we know that there was a key conscience change that happened in us. Our conscience was changed. One minute we were lost in our sin, and then we began to hear the call of God in our lives, and then we started to feel His Holy Spirit drawing us to Him, and then we got saved. And it was like this huge light bulb moment and everything changed. Suddenly we were different. We were transformed. Our conscience was completely changed. We had new desires, new hopes and new affections. And that's slightly different for those who grew up in the church. And they might not know when that ha moment happened for them, but they know that they've appealed to God and that they have a desire for God and they're following God. They may not know that transition. We just who came to Christ a bit later in life could see night and day when that transformation occurred. And for us, before the Bible was difficult to read, but now we have a hunger for the Word of God. Before, church was tedious, and now we can't get enough of God's people. Before, we made excuses for our sins, but now we put it to death by the Spirit. Before, we only cared about ourselves, but now we are beginning to put others ahead of ourselves. Before, we were the masters of our lives, 
but now Jesus really is Lord of all. Everything in our lives is being brought day by day into accordance with his rule and reign. And this is what it means to receive a good conscience. That's what saves you, not baptism. It's a conscience reborn in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, being made alive in him by the Spirit, just as he promised. And he goes to the right hand of the Father, and as he went, he promised to send the Holy Spirit, and that's exactly what he did, and he sent it into our hearts. There he is at the right hand of the Father. Note what Peter says here. Angels, authorities, and powers are subjected to him. The kingdom of darkness has been utterly defeated by Christ's suffering. Death has been swallowed up. Satan is defeated. He is bound and chained and impotent. He's impotent to stop the advancing church. He can no longer stand in the way of the church. Try as he might, he is a vanquished and decreasing foe, while Christ and his church increase everywhere. And it takes some eyes to see that. Colossians 1, 13-14 says, The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so, brothers and sisters, I have to ask you, have you made an appeal to God for a good conscience? Have you cried out to Him? Have you asked to receive the Holy Spirit? Do you have new desires? Do you have new affections? Do you have new longings for the will of God? And if you've been baptized here today, then remember that baptism. Remember what it signified. Remember the appeal that it made. It pointed to the work of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. It pointed to the transformation won by Him. You were not made clean by the washing of water, but by the work of Jesus. Look to Him. Walk by Him in the Spirit, and by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. And if you have not been baptized, and you do not trust in the Lord Jesus, then appeal to Him. Seek Him. Pray to Him. Cry out for a good conscience that you may be saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Have a listen to what Jesus says in Luke 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Christ is saying to you, make your appeal to God. He is a good father and he delights to give good gifts. In fact, he has given us the best gift that could ever possibly be given, his Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, believe in him and pray for that Holy Spirit. I want to leave you with Acts 2, 38 to 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Cry out to God, and he is merciful, wise, just, and forgiving. Let's pray. And Father, how good it is to hear the gospel again. And Father, how good it is to see how wide-reaching and how far the gospel is. 
and how throughout all of history there really has been a great war that we find ourselves in the middle of. But Lord, we know that you have won the victory and that you have won this battle and that no power here on earth, no power in the heavenly realms can possibly uh, change us or um, uh, bring us out of your grace and your mercy. Lord, we know that no things can separate us from the love of Christ that we have. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray you would embolden them, that they would go out into this battle knowing that the victory is theirs, that there is nothing they ought, need to fear from any power or authority, that none of these beings that are very powerful have any sway over them anymore. And I pray, Lord, that by your grace they would put to death the deeds of the flesh by your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray for those that may not know you. I pray for those who think they know you but do not. And I pray, Lord, that you would wake them up to this reality, that they would cry out to you and cry out to your Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray to those that know they don't know you. I pray, Lord, as well, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would believe and trust and know. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.